0: This morning as we walk through our text for today, so let's just begin with a word of prayer and we'll get we'll get started. Father God, we we consider it an honor and a privilege to sit under the teaching and preaching of your word. That this is a tremendous blessing that has sustained the people of God throughout generations upon generations. Sustain churches every, uh, in every nation, every, every corner of the globe. Um, and we're thankful that you have given us this gift, the revelation of yourself, the revelation of the best story that has ever been told, which is in fact the point of all of human history. And so we rejoice in this, Father. Help us understand clearly through the words of Stephen in this text, the, the beauty of Jesus' And our only appropriate response to believe in him, to follow him, to surrender to him. we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and again, uh, just in daily life, I come across mathematic problems and uh, some of, you, some of you know that I've had a lot of education. I've had some advanced, <laughs> some of the most advanced math classes you could possibly have. And when I encounter something like long division, I just give up. I don't even know what to do anymore with long division. And I learned that when I was in grade school, like many of you did. I encounter these problems, but I'm not willing to go back and like file through information. I'd rather just use my calculator and that's what I do. Thankfully, when it comes to the word of God, we don't have to feel that way. When I ask you to recall what you've learned about the history of the people of God, the history of redemption, the accounts from scripture, it's not like, oh, I'm so happy to be done with all that. No, we get to respond and say, Man, look again at the the beauty of God's story. See this, I never saw this before. And we, like the scribe that digs deeper, we find newer and better treasures in the Word. And that's what we get to do a little bit more today in Stephen's speech. Acts chapter 7, we're going to be walking through a large portion of the speech today, verses uh, 17 through 50. 17 through 50, and we're going to be covering a lot of ground, so I'm hoping that uh, you'll be able to listen, and then signals will sort of uh, pop off in your mind about your Bible knowledge, and you can fill in the gaps that may come through my preaching today. I'm not a storyteller. I don't like uh, particularly like preaching illustration, uh, uh, narrative. Excuse me, narrative type passages. Uh, it's, it's uncomfortable for me. So I'm hoping that your knowledge, your prior knowledge, will help you today. And if you don't have much prior knowledge, then today all you need to do is listen about Jesus. Okay? We're going to get to the gospel, which is the most important thing. We've been walking through Stephen's speech so far. We've seen Abraham. We've seen that promise, really the promise of all promises, uh, that there would be this nation created through his seed, offspring, singular. We learn that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We walk through the, the history of Joseph very briefly through the words of Stephen. And we've covered through both of these forefathers, both of these men of faith, we've covered the first major portion in Israel history. And now we move to a second portion, which takes the people of Israel, God's people from Egypt all the way to Babylon, a long stretch of time. Again, we'll read as we go, but the title for today is, again, A Remarkable Witness, Part 3, Part 4. will conclude Peter's, excuse me, uh, Stephen's speech next week. If you have been following along these past couple of weeks, or if you haven't, you need to know the point that Stephen is aiming for as he brings up these men. As he brings up Abraham, as he brings up Joseph, as he brings up their story, he brings up Moses, the rebellion of the people, all of this. If you accept them, and this is his case to the Sadducees, as Stephen is supposedly on trial, When in reality, the Sadducees are on trial after this speech. He's saying, if you truly accepted these men, particularly today, if you accept the redemptive ministry of Moses, then you would believe on Jesus. Everything points to him. So Linsky says of this, he says, Stephen tells this part of the history so as to bring out All the old opposition to Moses and to the law and thus to God himself. An opposition that finally culminated in the rejection of God's anointed. I'll give you this theme for today. Jesus, the deliverer, leads the greater exodus into the land of promise. Jesus, the Deliverer, leads the greater exodus into the land of promise. And I hope that will become crystal clear before we conclude today. I want to give you three characteristics of the Deliverer. Three characteristics of the Deliverer. First off, from verses 17 to 22, preserved to deliver. Very simple. Preserved to deliver. Read with me in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Preserved to deliver. We could say that God is the one who preserved this deliverer. Now, you, you may know the story well. Just recall these things. The people are growing, they're becoming more than what Pharaoh wants to handle. You know, they've been there for over 400 years, and now it's become, for the Egyptians, a matter of threat. Like, if they wanted to, then they could cause a lot of problems for us. And so, the Pharaoh there who did not know Joseph, this is a, a quotation from the history. He did not know Joseph, so he wasn't going to maintain all of the relations that had happened the previous hundreds of years. And you remember what happened? Pharaoh ordered to to limit the impact of the people of Israel. In the land of Egypt, he ordered that all the newborn sons would be murdered, all the newborn boys. Would be murdered. And so we learn from Stephen's recollection of this God was with Moses. God was with him. He preserved him throughout all of this. Now, uh, I, I read just this week about there's a painting, there's a painting that actually has hung in, a, in an art museum for 75 years. And it has hung upside down for 75 years. The only reason they found out that it was upside down was because they found a picture of the artist's studio and the painting was the other way. That's one of the reasons I love art. (laughs) And art is funny. But you see how there was a, a limited understanding and in the terms that, that maybe we can understand about God, we have this limited understanding. And you know what God does? It's like all the, all the babies are being killed. Now there's this one that God knows about that he is preparing. And we don't know about, but once you discover that, God, it's almost like he, he flips the painting right for us. And then we understand. We get it. It all makes sense. And so Moses was preserved at the hands, see this, of God's enemies. We've talked about it time and time again, but what God meant for evil, I mean, what you meant for evil, excuse me, God meant for good. Get my words twisted up. (laughs) He was preparing the deliverer of Israel. And again, Linsky here says, We have another type of Jesus. Remember, Joseph was a type of Christ. He says, we have another type of Jesus who also nearly perished as a babe, who also was saved even in Egypt, and who became a deliverer, yet one who was far greater than his type, Moses. Do you remember what happened in the days of Jesus? The governmental authority declared because he had heard this king had been born, we're going to murder the babies. And where did that put Jesus? It put him in Egypt. So as to fulfill the prophecy of Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. Just as God preserved Moses to deliver the people from Egypt, God brought forth and preserved Jesus who would carry out the greater exodus. Preserved to deliver. That's the first characteristic. Second characteristic, that we see rejected by his own, rejected by his own. Read with me verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Again, tap into your history. Though raised in Egypt, he never became an Egyptian, he maintained this very important tie with his people, Israel. He was always concerned for them. And then we see this visit. We don't know what drove him to visit other than the fact that, as it says here, he had it in his heart. He, he wanted to. It was this tie to his people that drove him to visit them out there and probably had to come some distance to see them. And then we see this unfortunate event, this unfortunate situation where his brother is being oppressed and then he attacks the Egyptian, kills the Egyptian. And then at this point, you could imagine that it is is firmly uh, settling into his mind that he could be the one that brings about the salvation of his people. And when he addresses the two that are quarreling, He comes to them. He didn't take a side. It was was purely mediatorial. And he wanted to help sincerely, but they rejected him. Who are you? You don't have authority over us. And then we see he spent these years, these following years in Midian. Those two events are recorded for us, and they're brought up by Stephen to show how they were so monumental in the life of Moses. You could imagine being on one hand in this situation. On the one hand, he comes to the defense of his fellow Israelite. Maybe, maybe he could be the catalyst that moves him to lead the people out of Egypt. And on the other hand, his loving concern for his brothers in conflict was completely misconstrued, misunderstood And it undoubtedly crushed his resolve to lead. And so he left. What it did for the people was extend their slavery another 40 years. But it also gave Moses 40 years to be prepared by God. Now if you're doing math, we're looking at Moses at about 80 years old here. He was misunderstood. He was rejected. You know, the Lord Jesus was no stranger to being misunderstood and rejected. John 1, 10 and 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He is, as we know from Isaiah... Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised," is what it says. And, and the reality is, for those who follow Jesus, he, he welcomes us into a taste of that rejection, right? But like Moses, like Moses, Hebrews 11:26, I love this verse. Moses considered. The reproach of Christ greater than all the treasure in Egypt. So may- maybe we could respond like Moses and say, Hey, let's let go of our earthly treasure, whatever you're hanging on to, and lay hold of the treasure That is the treasure of heaven itself, the apple of the Father's eye, the Son from eternity, incarnate, obedient, crucified, and resurrected. This is who we have. There is no greater treasure. And it should be a no-brainer for all of us who hear the message of the gospel to say, I don't need any of this, but I need Christ. And so we get that hint of this is what it means. Like Moses. I don't mind being rejected as he learned. I don't mind being rejected. But let me have this treasure. Let me have this treasure. Preserved to deliver. Secondly, rejected by his own. Thirdly, And this is the lion's share of the passage, confirmed by God, preserved to deliver, rejected by his own, confirmed by God. Now we're going to read all this together, so follow along with me, beginning of verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, a flame, a fire, and a bush. And Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight he drew near to look. There came a voice, the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man got sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and said, or excuse me, and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, gave them over to, the wor- to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your God Rephan. images you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as a prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand Make all these things. Moses is confirmed by God. Now remember, Stephen has been accused of speaking against Moses. He's been accused of speaking against the law and against the temple. So so here he backs up his not guilty plea by situating all of these in relation to the Savior Jesus. Now, notice the the various ways that he is confirmed by God. First off, he's confirmed in his call. Verses 30 to 34. We go back to the burning bush. Hopefully, you're familiar. It was burning, but it was not consumed. And there's various things that may be uh, wrapped up in the picture. The point is that he was in the presence of God. As we read here, angel, we learn that this angel, this Angel from the Lord, angel of the Lord. This is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. This occasion is the turning point in Moses' life. Again, at this point, we're talking 80-year-old Moses. Moses. I would ask you, maybe as a side note, when we talk about that passage, it just makes me me wonder if there is that occasion for you or if your life has always kind of been directionless. What sort of burning bush is there for you? What has God called you to do? It may not be anything super spectacular, super visible. In fact, God typically has us doing things that are mundane, that are monotonous, very normal. What has God called you to do, though? What is your burning bush? And the most important aspect of the burning bush is that this comes from Jesus, who was in the burning bush. This was Jesus who was The only God at the Father's side who makes him known to us. This is why Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The most important thing is, for you, your calling, whatever you've been called to do, did it come from Jesus? Has he made that clear to you? Has your life been set on a new track just like Moses when he encountered this burning bush? Now, back to the main point. Jesus was present, the call, commissioning of Moses. He's hopefully showing you what you've been called to do, commissioned to do, but Jesus underwent a commissioning ceremony, we could say, of his own. Of course, he was sent from eternity, but on that day of his baptism, the legitimacy of his ministry was confirmed And his ministry was inaugurated by the voice of the Father and the blessing of the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. The Trinity engaged in this climactic act of the plan of redemption. And so Stephen understands that just as Moses was confirmed by God, still being rejected by these people, constantly rejected, Jesus, too, confirmed by God, yet he's rejected. He's confirmed in his call. He's confirmed also in signs, verses 35 to 37. Stephen says, you know the Exodus? You know the Red Sea? You know the wilderness, miracles? Then he quotes Moses, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's. Moses knew his role in the exodus was a precursor. He knew that his role was a shadow of a greater exodus to come, one in which the Redeemer would deliver his people from slavery to sin and the judgment of hell in order to make them a holy people unto God. And do you remember what happened at the transfiguration? This was also one of my, my favorites. Do you remember what happened at the transfiguration? Luke's account of the transfiguration. There appeared with him Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets, which is a testimony to Jesus. What did he say? Luke 24 wrote to Emmaus. It's all about me. And he showed them. From all the law and the prophets, that was all about him. And so when that transfiguration happened, Luke records a peculiar word. Now, some of your versions may use the word departure, and that's sufficient. But it says that when Moses and Elijah appeared at the transfiguration with Jesus, that Moses was actually talking to Jesus about the departure. You look at your Greek word, that's Exodus, Exodus. He was talking with Jesus about the exodus that was to come. So, picture this with me. Moses only recounts the exodus that he led as a foreshadowing, a precursor, a type of what was to come, a greater exodus where all the people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus are rescued forever from sin, rescued forever from slavery, rescued forever for freedom. I love, I love the fact that we can look at those words and see a little bit about that conversation. <laughs> I guess I could probably speculate a lot. I'm not going to. It's confirmed by God and his call. It's confirmed by God in the signs. And let's review just a little bit, right? They, they saw the sea part. In the wilderness, they received the manna from heaven. They got the water from the rock. You remember when he struck the rock, but then the next time he was instructed, you don't strike it this time, you speak to it. And they got the water from the rock. And then really to conclude and, and what is such a wonderful climax to the, the whole idea of the wilderness wandering. When Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, After everybody had been bitten by the snakes, they were going to die. All they had to do was look to him. All they had to do was look at what Moses was doing, lifting up the bronze serpent, and they would be healed. So rewind a little bit. See, the parting of the sea, they were saved through the water. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, they were all baptized into Moses. They were baptized into Moses. You know what that means? The parting of the Red Sea is a picture of our baptism into Christ. And so when you go into that water and you come up baptized into the Lord Jesus, it's a picture. I saved you through water. They received the manna from heaven. And what did Jesus say? Hey, your forefathers, they got the manna from heaven. But you know what? I'm the bread of life. They got the water from the rock when it was struck. And Jesus is the one. Who received the the blow of death. One time. Never to be done again. One time. One sacrifice. Once for all. So when they came to the rock again. And they needed water. And God said just speak to it this time. And then Moses struck it. Out of anger. He was prevented from the promised land for his disobedience. God said, I just told you to speak to it. Look at this, folks. Jesus died once, he rose again, and now we come to him, our mediator before God. And we speak to him. We know him, we commune with him, we worship him. And then, just as that bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and all who looked were saved they were healed John 3:14 Jesus to Nicodemus so the son of man must be lifted up and all who believe on him will have eternal life Look, we see what's going on in the call. We see what's going on. The signs are confirmed by God. All of these things are confirming Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And then he brings us to the law. He brings us to the law. Verses 38 through 43, call, signs, law. The law confirms. Moses was the one, Stephen says, that received the living oracles. This is a reference to to Sinai, as he says. And these living oracles are a reference to the giving of the law. So uh, Moses becomes a mediator of sorts in those days for the people. But Stephen's words here condemn the leader's understanding of the law. If you skip down to verse 53, you see it says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We have to ask a question, like Sadducees, Pharisees, all these guys are like, their life is devoted to keeping the law. So how could we reasonably say that they were just like those in the wilderness that rejected before the law came down the mountain, they're already making an idol. They rejected it before they even got it. Even after they got it, they said, Hey, we want to go back to Egypt. It's better there. You're terrible, Moses. Let us go back. But how did they, Stephen's listeners, how did they fail to keep the law? Notice, as he records here, Luke records here from Stephen, the people in the wilderness refused Moses. They turned to Egypt, they created an idol. The same three things happened with the Sadducees. They rejected the mediator. They opted for slavery. Understand, folks, if you have the law without Christ, you are in bondage. You are perpetually a failure. You are never good enough. Your life is in shackles. And what these guys did, in order to recover from that feeling, they made it to where they could rule over people with the very same law, forcing them into the very same shackles. And then they created an idol. You say, What's the idol? It's the idol of self righteousness, the idol of self worship. Now notice here, Moses received the living word, the living oracles, but Jesus is the living word. To reject Jesus is to misunderstand the law. We know from Scripture, particularly one of the the uses of the law, Galatians 3.24, law is our guardian our tutor. King James says, schoolmaster. The law is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So one who sees their righteousness through the law will never come to the full saving knowledge of Jesus. Galatians 2.21, if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Romans 10 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the law has served its purpose in this way. When you come to the realization that you are an utter failure, you can never measure up, and then you believe on Jesus because he did measure up. He was perfect, he did obey at every point. No failure, no sin. And then all of that, as we learn from Abraham and believing the promise, all of it is credited to us. Our account is now rich with the righteousness of Jesus. Their rejection of Christ reveals their fundamental misunderstanding of the law and their perversion of it. Thus, those that sought to live their lives honoring the law actually dishonor it by their unbelief in the Savior to whom it points them. The law brings life in so much as it shows us Christ and life in him. The law confirms that God was with Moses. The law confirms that Jesus is the Messiah, the Deliverer. And then Stephen quotes from Amos, Expanding the reach of God's judgment to the whole nation and summarizing the sad, idolatrous history of Israel. Jesus is being confirmed in these ways, calls, signs, law, just like Moses was. Yet they continue to reject him. Last thing. It's confirmed. Confirmed in the temple, the temple, verses 44 through 50, as we have already read. Stephen shows respect for the temple history. It's very clear from the measurements of the tabernacle that were delivered directly to Moses all the way to the temple construction under Solomon's reign. The temple was, as one commentator says, A constant symbol of God's holy presence. But you notice how Stephen only refers here to Solomon's temple. And I think this may be sort of a diplomatic way of bringing up the temple, because they know temple history better than anybody. But he brings up Solomon's temple, which was destroyed. And it was later rebuilt and destroyed again. And then the temple they had in their day was built by Herod, who was not even a true Jew. All of these things would have been circling in their minds. And that temple that they knew would be destroyed in 70 A.D. Here's the point. Hear me. Here's the point. God's presence is not dependent on a structure. They had moved from worship to God through the temple to worship the temple. The Most High, Stephen says, does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Solomon knew this truth and he confessed it before he even built the temple. These leaders did not understand this. Which is why they made the temple into an idol for them. A way to keep God, rather their small God, their small, impotent version of God, to keep him bound. A God that they can control, a God that they can manipulate, a God that would allow them to exalt themselves. In their religious efforts, they confined God to a building when heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. MacArthur says the temple was the symbol of God's presence, not the prison of his essence. We're starting to circle back to the things that we encountered with Abraham. No land, no, no seed, no, no sun, no, no nothing. <laughs> no temple, no law. He believed God. He took him at his word. God was with him. God was with Joseph. God was with Moses. And right here we look at the temple. And maybe there's some specific application for us before we conclude today. We sometimes refer to the house of God, and in our minds, it's a structure made with human hands. But this is a misnomer. The presence of God is made known to us only in the tabernacling of Jesus John, one, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. It dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. He was with us. Among us, we saw him. His presence, his presence was here. First John, he talks. We touched him. We watched his ministry. We saw him work. We we. We have firsthand eyewitness accounts of these things. He tabernacled among us, He dwelt among us. Thus, when Jesus' physical resurrected body ascended to heaven, He left us with His body. How does that work? (laughs) The church. He left us with His body which is according to the New Testament, and I wish we could just study this for for a few more hours, right? (laughs) He left us with the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the living stones being joined together, built up on the cornerstone, the spiritual House. We're talking about the body of Christ, the people of God. You know, tonight we're discussing some insurance, insurance related to our our building. But don't be mistaken, we don't have insurance because God needs our building. as if he needs somewhere to live around here. So we'll maintain a proper perspective when we confess that we are the body of Christ, building or no building, insurance or no insurance, Christ as head, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing glory to God as we fulfill the mission that he's given to us. And Stephen understood this. And so he propagated the gospel for the good of the church. And the church was catalyzed by his bold witness. So much so that we get his speech and his stoning as an entire chapter in the history of the church. Consider that, brothers and sisters. Concluding, bring this all together, Stephen built this case in order to make a remarkable statement, a remarkable witness to his audience. His summary is, we're going to see a little bit next week. Everything in our history points to the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Jesus is the one preserved in order to bring redemption. Jesus is the one rejected by his own. Jesus is the one confirmed by God. The one sent from heaven. Lord over creation, the end of the law, the temple. And we are his body. We are his body, the church. In response, maybe it would be that as you've heard today, you've not heard a lot of directives, instructions from the word of God. Stephen didn't directly instruct any of us to do anything as he recounted the history of Israel. But the response to the knowledge of the gospel is repentance and faith. So if you're unbelieving today, or maybe you just have a generic type of belief and you've never come to a place where you said, hey, I'm following Jesus. I belong to him. This is it. Burning bush, whatever. I'm following him. Repentance and faith is the only proper response. And those of you who know Jesus, oh, may we rejoice. May we rejoice in the good pleasure of God to work this whole story out before our eyes and then invite us to be a part of it in the redemption that comes through Jesus, Jesus alone, who is the deliverer, the leader of our exodus, the leader of our salvation. Let's believe on him. Let's respond repentance and faith